Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. January the 10th, the 705th year since the foundation of Rome, the 49th before the birth of Christ. The sun had long set behind the Apennine Mountains. Lined up in full marching order, soldiers from the 13th Legion stood massed in the dark. Bitter the night may have been, but they were well used to extremes. For eight years they had been following the governor of Gaul on campaign after bloody campaign, through snow, through summer heat, to the margins of the world. And now, returned from the barbarous wilds of the north, they found themselves poised on a very different frontier. Ahead of them flowed a narrow stream. And Tom Holland, if that (laughs) very purple prose hasn't sent you to sleep, what was the name of that stream, pray tell? Dominic, the name of that narrow stream was the Rubicon. And who wrote those extraordinary lines, Tom? (laughs) Dominic, twas I. (laughs) It was. So that's the beginning of Tom's book, Rubicon. So that's the book that launched you as a historian, isn't it? I mean, it's, yes, it's the first it's the first work of history that I wrote. Um, so, uh, in a way, my career as a historian owes everything to those lines. With, that, with those lines, extraordinarily, yes. <laughs> you are still working in history, and here I mean, we are. Astonishing! Here we are going back to it. And so, we did the twelve days of Christmas um, over the festive season, and we were talking about anniversaries. And this is another yeah. anniversary, isn't it? Because January the tenth. Did it really happen on January the tenth, Tom? Uh, well, <laughs> as with everything in ancient history, it's complex. I mean, that's this is the traditional date. Um, it, it may have been a, a couple of days later, and it's further complicated by the incredible difficulty of mapping um, the Republican era dates onto our contemporary calendar. So right. by some reckonings, it may have been in late November, which... <laughs> No, oh really that's yeah. disappointing but but let's just let's just scrub that so so the 10th of of um january julius caesar crosses the rubicon and it is i think one of the great moments in world history it's a moment of, of incredible drama and the measure of that is that uh really i think ever since um 17th century maybe even 16th century in english the phrase to cross the rubicon has meant to take an irreversible decision. And the reason that it has that resonance is that Caesar standing on the Rubicon it, it is facing what the Romans called a discrimen. It's, it's a moment of excruciating tension that is also a kind of dividing line in his yeah. career. In his, because what he essentially has to decide is, um, does he stand down his command? He's been governor of Gaul for, for almost 10 years. Uh, does he have to lay down his command, go back to Rome and risk prosecution and potentially the ruin of his career? Or does he stay at the head of his legions and cross the Rubicon, which is the, the, the river marks the boundary between his provinces of Gaul and Italy itself? Yeah. And for him to cross that river, let alone at the head of his legions, is essentially to, to declare civil war. Okay. So, the, so the decision could, could not be more massive. So before we get into the decision, set the scene for us very, very broadly. 
we're in the Roman Republic. Yeah. In the first century BC. Yeah. So Rome is not yet an empire in name, but it kind of is an empire in fact, isn't it? I mean, it's acquired yeah. all this territory in sort of Asia and North Africa and so on. And, and the Republican system. So the, 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 the picture you paint in your book, which has so many kind of contemporary resonances, doesn't it? With the kind of the American Republic and so on that the picture you paint in your book is of this extraordinary city kind of you know, smoky brick disputatious crowded slum infested city that has risen through military might to become the master of the mediterranean and it's sending out generals to the to the provinces and to the frontiers commanding these armies who are increasingly unwilling to basically obey the conventions of the political is that is that a fair summary essentially yes essentially uh, I mean, the, the essence of the, of the Republican system in Rome, it's founded, again, a bit like the American Republic, it's, it's founded with the expulsion of the monarchy. And so the, the ideal in the Roman Republic, and, and, and Republic comes from raised public, it's the, it's the public affair. So the idea that every, well, it's male citizen, has a stake in the affairs of, of the running of the city. Um, and the, the ideal essentially is that... Um, the Republic should give free reign to the talents of its people and above all their yearning for individual honour. Yeah. But that those yearnings for individual honour should be subordinated to the honour of the city itself and the Roman people as a collective. And so therefore there's a kind of ferocious um, series of constitutional checks and balances that are designed to stop essentially a, a citizen from becoming overmighty, from making yeah. himself the equivalent of a king. Um, and so those would include the division of the king's powers, for instance, between uh, elected officials called consuls who are, you know, there are two of them so that one can always keep an eye on the other. They only serve for two years. This is true of most of the um, of the of the uh, the lesser magistracies in the Republic as well. Um, but it, it's also. Uh, it's something that 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 every individual citizen is is raised up with a consciousness that um Kind of king is a dirty word. The word rex is a dirty word. Yeah. And that properly, your personal honour must be tied up with the honour of, of the collective. And this is a brilliantly effective system that enables Rome and the Romans to emerge essentially from being kind of bunched of cattle rustlers camped out on hills above marshes to, as you said, ruling the whole of, of the Mediterranean. The problem is with this that the more powerful that Rome becomes, so the more opportunities there are for its individual citizens themselves to become powerful. And yeah. you end up in a situation where certain citizens at the absolute top of the, the tree of achievement are able to put the whole Republic in their shadow. So this brings us to, to a question that we had from lots of listeners, um, Roy Neely, for example. And he says, What's basically what's so special about the Rubicon? So we're at 49 BC, Caesar takes his troops across the Rubicon. Why is that? Because he's not the first overmighty individual, is he? Because you've had a civil war between two massive titanic Roman figures a generation earlier, Marius, Gaius Marius and Lucius Cornelius Sulla. And Sulla had also marched on Rome, hadn't he? So why is he that did. different from, yes. from Caesar? He, I mean, it's a good question. Uh, essentially, the so, so Roman history in the first century uh, BC 
it's kind of structured around the personal rivalry of um, kind of charismatic populists and people who tend to identify themselves with the, the traditions. So it's this the, podcast. The inherited. It's it the balance of like. this podcast. Yes, Tom. it is. If you like, you are the charismatic populist, and I'm the chilly, <laughs> stiff, cold traditionalist. I wasn't going to say that. <laughs> I absolutely wasn't going to say that. I, I'm sure. I definitely thought of it the other way around. So, so the the, the last of these, obviously, is is um, Mark Antony against uh, Octavian, who becomes Augustus. Then yeah. you've got Julius Caesar, who's absolute classic populist, against Pompey, who's also a populist, but ends up. Uh, fighting for the, uh, the the kind of senatorial elite. And then right at the beginning, you have the, as you say, these two figures, Marius and Sulla. And Marius is a, a populist. He's a great general. He's um, He's not aristocratic. The key thing that he does is that he faces up to the fact that the kind of the, the, the traditional days where, so, so a legion, what does a legion mean? A legion basically is a levy. And the idea is, is, is that a legio, a levy, is simply the Roman people in arms. And so everyone has heard of centurions. Centurions command centuries. But centuries are also the the voting blocks within the Republic. So there's this idea that the army camp is simply a mirror of of the forum. The campus marshals the plain of Mars. You march out there and you you, you get enrolled in the army and then you go off and fight. Then you come back and you resume civilian life. And this for centuries has been the way that it should organize. The problem is, again, that Rome has become too powerful, that um, it now if you're being enrolled in a legion, you're being sent to serve in, in um, Spain or in Syria or whatever. And so it's impractical to imagine that you can just come back. And so rather than having a single legio, a single levy, you start to get multiple levies, multiple legions. Yeah. And Marius basically professionalizes it. And he says that it's unfair to expect you know, peasants or whatever to go off and not be paid for this service. Um, and so he in, essentially this kind of idea of a, a citizen militia, which is what the, 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 le- the legio had been, becomes what we now think of as the Roman legions. And these become professional entities. And this makes Marius very popular. And he becomes consul you know, a record number of times. But this generates opposition um, and envy. And the most charismatic figure who um, is envious of him is this guy called Sulla, who is a kind of louche, uh, hadn't hadn't had a great, you know, he hadn't had a meteoric rise, kind of hung out with drag queens and yeah. pimps and, you know, in the red light district and all that kind of stuff, but turns out to be a brilliantly successful general and in due course, an absolutely ruthless political operator. And, what happens is that um, there's there's a kind of war in the East that promises all kinds of loot. It's going to be easy pickings. And Sulla gets the command for that. Um, there are complicated political shenanigans in Rome. That means he gets stripped of that command. Sulla has, has his, <laughs> the legions ready to go. And rather than accept this, he marches on Rome and Marius is forced to flee. So if Sulla marches on Rome, isn't that, Across the Rubicon type moment, it kind of yes, it and is. Why don't I we mean, remember? Why doesn't anybody care about that? Or do they? Did they care at the time? They did care massively. It was an absolutely seismic event, right? A, a completely seismic event, and it was absolutely felt to be that. Uh, Sala then goes goes um, off to uh, off to the east. He wins his war. Meanwhile, in Rome, 
there's been not just a civil war, but but a war of the Italians in rebellion against the Romans. Sulla comes back, he embroils himself in that. He crushes the Italians. He crushes his opponents in the civil war. He establishes himself um, as the absolute master of Rome. And he dusts down this antique office, which is a very, very ancient one in the Republic. When the Republic is in absolutely desperate straits, you can appoint a single man for a six-month term. And the, the the name of this office is dictator. Yeah. So Sulla is appointed dictator for more than six months because he has the army at his back. He he is absolutely ruthless towards his opponents. He has them, he has a whole bunch of them massacred <laughs> in yeah. the heart of Rome. Uh, he then puts the price on people's heads. He posts prescription lists in the forum. Um, people are paid if they bring him his enemies' heads. And it's an absolute rule of terror. And he, he uses his position of power essentially to, um, to enshrine the senatorial elite back in their kind of traditional role as arbiters of the state. So the Senate is, it literally means a kind of assembly of old men, you know, the elders, the betters, um, the bonnie, they call themselves the, yeah. the, the good guys. Um, <laughs> this is how they see themselves. I, I, and when Salah does this, and the enemy, the people that he's targeting, he's targeting the populists. And so that's why there are kind of so populares. And I think populist would be a, a legitimate yeah. way to describe it. The, the, the difference between them isn't so much about policy as it would be today, but about style. Yeah. And I, th- I think, and I think you absolutely see that, that that's something that over the past few decades, you know, the past few years, perhaps much more than when I wrote this, which was in the early kind of first years of the, of the 21st century. That sense of how differences in style can kind of bleed into politics yeah. and generate incredible divisions seems much clearer. And one of the populists, and he's a very, very young at this point, is Julius Caesar, and he flees into exile. And for Caesar, that experience of you know having to hide out in barns, of being hunted across Italy, of knowing that there are people who 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 will be paid if they can get his head and he's what is is that because he's he's very young though tom he's so very, why is very young. why has he been identified as a target by sulla well he's related by marriage he, he, so he's he, he's um he's 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 married his his family have married into maris's family uh, so he's right. he's very much on the kind of the marian side he's very much yeah. on the populist side and he identifies with 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 that kind of side in the in, in this 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 terrible schism. He survives it. Sulla and, and Caesar will express astonishment at this later in his career. Sulla lays down his powers. He retires to the Bay of Naples. Um, you know, he's he's basically kind of he's recalibrated the republic, the functioning, the plumbing of the republic, so that um, basically his guys, his class of person, will be in power. Um, and then he retires. But he then lays it down. So Caesar is able to come back to Rome and to resume his career. But I think it 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 has a um the impact that that has on Caesar is that he's offended as as a an enthusiast for the republican ideal of citizenship that that anyone could have done what Sulla did. He's offended. He's a, he's appalled so by it. The irony. So, so and so right that the way he through of all his, people is yeah. so, so right the way through his career Caesar will be renowned for his clementia, his 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 mercy, and there's something aristocratic about that. It's humiliating for a Roman to be 
shown clementia by by another citizen. But there is another way of seeing that, which is that um, it's an expression of Caesar's feeling that there should properly be a kind of civic commonality. And that to offend against that ultimately is to offend against the deepest ideals of the Roman Republic. So he thinks that politics has limits, basically. I think so. Yes, I think so. I mean, he's so he's he's a, a very, very, very complex figure. But I think that you could say that through his career, he's motivated by two great ideals. One is <laughs> that that his own genius should have free reign. And yeah. that's a, a crucial part of it. You know, he absolutely feels that no limits should be set on his ability to achieve great things, both for himself, but also for Rome. But he does also have a, an incredibly strong sense of loyalty towards those of his fellow citizens who back him. And that in due course is why he will become a great military leader and why he will win the love of his soldiers. So that sets up who Julius Caesar was. And we will crack on with the story, Tom Holland, after a very quick break in which advertisers will promote Roman-themed goods. See you in a minute. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii, okay? And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy, too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics U.S. wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to the rest is history. Now, I don't know about you, but um, I was delighted with the haul that Father Christmas brought to our household. And chief among the things um, that he brought was a board game for my son uh, called Herd Mentality. And the reason I really enjoy playing that board game is because so much of my time I spend on the internet reading a publication that pushes back against herd mentality. Tom Holland, do you know what that publication is? Would it be unheard.com, U-N-H-E-R-D? U-N-H-E-R-D, exactly. And they very much encourage independent thinking. They've got an excellent article at the moment, I understand, by somebody called Peter Franklin. He's got an article. Do you know what the title is? 
No. It's restorations always fail. Whether it's old Labour, the monarchy, or America after Trump, history shows that there is no going back. Very apt, Tom, for a podcast about the fall of the Roman Republic, don't you think? Mm. Is, there a, is, there, is there a reference, perhaps, to Roman Republican history? He says, while firmly restoring the old order, Sulla made a mistake. He allowed the son-in-law of Sinner, the defeated populist leader, to escape with his life. The name of that young man? Albert Einstein. <laughs> Diana Spencer. <laughs> no, Gaius Julius Caesar. Yeah. The lesson here, says Peter Franklin, is simple. Just because you defeated one populist, it doesn't mean that another more capable one isn't waiting for you down the line. Who's he thinking of, do you reckon? No idea. Donald J. Trump, I reckon. Oh, goodness. You don't think so? Well, that's yeah. a chilling thought. Well, again, I see. I wouldn't. Yes, I think it's harsh on Caesar to compare him to Trump, but we've already yeah. discussed that. But yeah. Um, yeah, no, it's it's an excellent point and an excellent illusion. Well, for excellent points and illusions, you should go to unheard.com more often. I think. Yeah, and isn't it wonderful that two thousand years and more after Caesar's assassination, he's still being mentioned in online publications? Yes, that and, push and, back against and, herd mentality. And what Caesar? Caesar was, of course, you will know Caesar was in debt, wasn't he, in his career? So financial prudence mattered to him enormously. Yes, it did. So he would have been very keen on special offers. And unheard... Do you know, I don't think he would. (laughs) No. You're spoiling my brilliant link. No, he would would have rejected that offer because he would have probably spent double. He would have paid more for it. But for most people who aren't Julius Caesar... Yeah, what a fool. Dominic, you're about to say there's a splendid offer, isn't there? There is. There's a splendid offer for rest is history listeners. So don't be like Julius Caesar. No, don't. Go to unheard.com slash rest. That's U-N-H-E-R-D. And you'll get your first three month subscription free. Because I think the moral of this podcast, if it has a moral, is uh, having people like Julius Caesar around isn't always good news. It's very so, bad news. Yeah. So save the Republic. Take up this special offer. Welcome back to The Rest is History. Now, Tom, before we get back to Julius Caesar, can we just paint in a little bit more of the sort of surrounding picture? Sulla retires. Yeah. And then Rome doesn't slip fully into dictatorship, does it? They, they basically go back to the no, old it goes, yeah, system. It starts, I mean, yeah, it's weakened, it, but they they're, they're, they carry on as though it hadn't happened. And the, the big new sort of the, the wunderkind, the young meteor, is Pompey. Who's yes. the, the the sort of baby faced, um, teenage butcher? He's called the teenage butcher. You called him that, didn't you? Or was yeah. that well? That no, that's that's the, that's the name that he's given. So he'd um, been one of Sulla's hitmen, basically. Had he? Is that fair? Yeah. So he's a, he's a kind of um, uh, a local bigwig in um, in eastern Italy, and he raises a private army, as does also another. A big hitter called Crassus. Yeah. And Pompey and Crassus both have meteoric careers in the wake of of Sulla. So they're kind of Sulla's Sulla's boys, basically. They're Sulla's boys. And uh, basically, you know, Sulla has has weighted it so that um, people who backed him are are kind of in pole position to win advancement. Um, Most of them do it in the traditional way, going up through the magistracies. Um, Crassus does it by he becomes incredibly wealthy. So one of his wheezes is that um, he employs Rome's only fire service. Um, <laughs> and he will then, 
you know, he'll kind of wait for, for buildings to be on fire and then charge the, uh, the, the kind of hapless people money to put it out and he'll then buy it up and build new blocks of flats that's, everywhere. That's very, dare I say, it's quite Trumpian behaviour. It's very, very Trumpian. But but uh, Crassus is a much kind of chillier, more controlled, more ruthless, more intelligent figure than, right. than say, Trump. Okay. Uh, Pompey is... So he models himself on Alexander the Great. Yeah. Um, he has the quiff of Alexander the Great. Um, he uh, he ends up sourcing what he claims is the cloak of Alexander the Great. Obviously, some guy in some Eastern <laughs> bazaar has flogged it to him. Um, but the um, and Alexander the Great is a kind of very ambivalent figure in Rome because he's a king uh, and he's a conqueror and he's seen as being a tyrant. So Pompey's identification with him isn't entirely positive. And it's reflective of the fact that that there are very kind of strict age thresholds in the Republic for when you can hold a magistracy. So most of the Romans absolutely adore middle age. So you become 40, you can run for consul. So it's great. I mean, you know, we yeah. we become 40 and it's, oh, God, I'm de- middle age. I'm so depressed. Midlife crisis. <laughs> get a motorbike. Um, they go, brilliant. Now I can run for the consulship, which is why if you look at the portrait busts of, of Romans from the Republican era, they all look incredibly old, kind of right. crow's feet and baggy eyes and all that kind of stuff. But Pompey ignores that. And he just kind of gets as many commands as he can. And he ends up um, through a kind of complicated process being given command of, of basically the whole of the East. And the East is an absolute mess. The Romans haven't wanted to run it. Equally, they haven't wanted to allow anyone um, to uh, any of the kind of local kings or rulers to have any position of authority. So basically, it's all just collapsed into um, anarchy. So Pompey goes over there and he conquers the whole lot. And when he comes back to Rome, he he brings kings in his wake. He's stupefyingly rich. There's He's got all the plunder of the East. He has it? this incredible, incredible triumph. triumph where... Um, in his triumph, they carry an enormous mo- kind of bust of him with complete with quiff, entirely modelled out of pearls. And it's kind of borne aloft so that everyone can see it. And this is magnificent, splendid. He's the hero yeah. of the hour. It redounds gloriously to the reputation of Rome, but it's also deeply, deeply offensive to people who see themselves as his peers. And one person who really detests it is Crassus who has always been Pompey's great rival. So Pompey and Crassus, for instance, between them suppressed the the rebellion of of Spartacus, the great slave revolt. Yeah. Actually, it was Crassus who did it, but Pompey turns up and nicks the glory, (laughs) which is kind of, he's a a glory hogger. So Pompey finds to his fury and disappointment that even though he's, he's by far the richest, you know, he's got this wealth, he's got this power, he's he's, um, conquered half the East, People who he views as kind of worthless political schemers are getting together and are frustrating what he wants to do. And basically what he wants to do is he wants to provide land for his veterans and he wants his the settlement of the East to be ratified. Yeah. And his enemies in the Senate refuse to do this. And this is classically how the Republic has, has functioned, is that if you are over, if you are high achieving, then your enemies will gang up and form a consortium and kind of block you out. So Pompey is in a mess. And so he looks around for allies and he comes up with two allies. One of them is astonishing. One of them is Crassus. So the, Crass- his arch enemy. His basically. arch enemy. 
but but Crassus basically decides that the pleasure of hating Pompey has to come second to his own ambition. Yeah. So Crassus always puts ambition first. So do you know so, what this is, Tom? What? This is one. Um, this is uh, 1997. It is uh, John Redwood and Ken Clark teaming up in the Tory <laughs> leadership contest. That's exactly what against it is. William Hague. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. I know it's a yes. very niche reference, but about two <laughs> listeners will be pleased by that. <laughs> no, that's exactly what it is. Um, but they uh, and so they basically what they what Crassus and Pompey are both going to do is essentially a kind of criminal operation to force through the measures that they both want that that can only be done in a criminal way. And to do that, they need a consul who will force through the measures. A sort of tame consul, basically. Well, kind of a tame consul, but a consul who is willing to attract, to to, to put up with the opprobrium that, that acting as as their kind of agent will bring. And there's an obvious person. And that who is, is it? Julius Caesar. So oh. Julius Caesar has, compared to Crassus and Pompey, had a, had a, a much less... Um, a kind of successful career. He again has gone through the hoops. He's gone up the steps. There's a famous story that that Caesar is in in Spain and he goes to a temple and sees a statue of Alexander and weeps that Alexander had conquered the world and he has done nothing. He should and, have read my book. He should have read my no, he should have book. done. He didn't. That like, inspiring last paragraph. Yeah. <laughs> um, so Caesar is very, very ambitious. He's very, very able. He's very, very popular. He spent enormous amounts of money that he doesn't have on um, basically making himself pop. You know, he so, so he he's the first person to, um, in, to to stage gladiators dressed entirely in silver armor, for instance. These are the despite the fact. So he he's no a kind of poli- he's a kind of political showman. He's that's what a political that's showman. what he is. Yes. So is this a, to use another absolutely ridiculous modern comparison? Is he sort of slightly Boris Johnson in his "Have I Got News for You"? Yes, I think. I, so, I, again, obviously, any comparison with with um, Julius Caesar and any political figure on the current political British stage yeah, would be ridiculous. Yeah, it is ridiculous. But, but he's a joke. He's not. Well, he's not a joke. He's, but he's, no, he's not a joke. He's but not he's, a joke. So that's but he's a, a crowd pleaser. That's the different. He's a, he's seen as being dangerous. So right. Sulla, Sulla. Yeah. People had gone to him and said, look, pardon, pardon um, Caesar. And Sulla had said, there are a lot of Marius's in that young man. Okay. So people knew he so, was substantial. So Sulla had seen that he was very, very able. And actually he describes him as, as um, loosely belted. So Caesar wears his toga in a fashionably loose belted way. And he's a dandy. Uh, he does spectacular kind of... he. He borrows enormous amounts of money to 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 set to build a villa. He then decides he doesn't like the villa, so he has the villa pulled down. And this is the kind of stunt that appalls lots of senators, but equally make you know it it, it kind of appeals to to lots of lots of voters as well. Well, when we did our uh, when we started our podcast, Tom, we had an episode. One of the very first episodes we did was about parallels. We were talking about Donald Trump yeah. in historical context, and and you yeah. compared him to. I mean, the, the the title of the podcast was "Is Trump Caesar or or isn't that wasn't it? Is Trump Caesar or Nixon or something?" And you had this like that, wasn't it? thing about the Romans having this Roman politics having this role that people played, where they deliberately appalled the kind of the bien pensant, the great and the good, For fun. yes, in order to win popularity yes. with the crowds, and that's what Caesar's doing from the start, pretty much, is it? Yes. So, so I think, I mean, I, I'm sure I mentioned it, this in, um, in that episode, but I'll, I'll do it again. Um, 
I think the closest parallel to what the Bonnie, the the the, um, the the kind of classic senatorial elite, the people who will loathe and detest Caesar throughout his career, if you think of John McCain's funeral, where all the pre- you know all the presidents apart from Trump went, yeah. and Democrats and Republicans were joined there in the kind of the front row to mourn this great hero, and. Trump's comment on McCain was he didn't like losers. He, you know, he liked his war heroes not to be captured, which is an appalling thing to say, particularly yeah. since Trump had never served. But it was also kind of darkly funny that the yeah. people did find funny because the the kind of the shock of offending traditional norms was. So, so, so Caesar was never. I, I mean, Caesar was was a great. You know, he was incredibly able. He was will turn out to be one of the greatest generals of all time. Yeah. He's a man of incredible ability, but he does have a talent for grabbing attention or yeah. for winning the popular vote, that perhaps there's just a kind of a, a hint of that there. He he runs for consul and he wins it by a, a kind of massive, massive majority. And of course, he has a colleague, a guy called Bibulus, um, who is there to stand up for the the the, the interests of the Bonnie the, uh, the the classic elite, but but Caesar just elbows him aside, so it, people follow him around and, and tempt, empty buckets of shit over Bibulus's head. <laughs> oh dear, poor and they Bibulus. kind of they and and when they when they try and um, oppose Caesar's uh, measures that he's ramming through in favour of Pompey and and um, and Crassus, um, they get beaten up and they get forced out of the forum. Um, and so people say that this is the consulship not of Caesar and Bibulus, but of Julius and Caesar. But at this point, Tom, is he very much the third man in the triumvirate? Yes, he is. When they start out. Yeah. And at that point, we had a couple of questions from people about Caesar and ambition. So Joshua D. Terry, for example, or Edouard Habsburg, a man who has given his surname a, a little bit about imperial power and the winning and losing of it. So they're asking, is Caesar even at this stage? Does he have his eyes on the prize? Does he see himself as another Sulla? as a man who's going to wield supreme power, or is he an opportunist seizing chances as they come up and, you know, is it, is it, is it premeditated I, I, I think, or I think not? At this stage, um, he, I th- well, I think there are two things going on in Caesar's mind. I think one is, uh, as I said, that um, he wants to do great things. Yeah. But he wants to do great things for the Republic, for Rome. Uh, and he is frankly frustrated by the little guys who are trying to block him from that. He has a consciousness of his own genius and he wants the opportunity to fulfill that. I think also Caesar has looked at Pompey and has seen that basically if you get a command, uh, the opportunities for um, the opportunities that that opens up to you will ultimately enable you to put the Republic in your shadow. Yeah. And Pompey is on a scale beyond everyone else. I mean, Pompey is Pompey is criminal in his methods, but conformist in his ambitions. And so there's a, I think there's actually a question here from RP. Why did Pompey never do the equivalent of crossing the Rubicon when he was at the height of his powers? The reason he didn't do that was because ultimately he was in his heart a conservative. He'd trampled down convention to get to the top. But then having got to the top, what he really wanted was the approval of, you know, the senatorial yeah. elite. Uh, Pompey was a bit of a parvenu. He he wanted to be accepted by them. Uh, Caesar, Caesar was, Caesar didn't care about that. Caesar was, you know, Caesar claimed a line of descent from, um, from, uh, fr- from Venus. 
he could trace his his uh, ancestry all the way back, you know, beyond the beginning of the Rome to to Troy. Um, so Caesar had no hang-ups about that, and he wanted that license because he felt that he deserved it, but also because he felt that if he was going to be a great man in the Republic, it was no longer enough just to be a consul. You had to have a record of military success behind you, which would bring you legions who would be devoted to you. It would bring you the wealth that you could then spend on um, on winning yourself popularity by kind of building you know, spectacular architectural projects in Rome or handing money out to the poor or... Um, staging entertainments. And the only way to do that is for Caesar to get command. Now, one of the things that his enemies had done before he becomes consul is to say every, every consul, when he finishes his term of office, gets a, a, a kind of a posting. And they, they say, well, Caesar, as his posting, he can he can organize um, the, you know stuff in Italy. So basically, it's kind of, you know, he, he can be the head of um, the motorways agency or something like that. <laughs> Yeah. And Caesar's not having any of that. So so he basically, what Caesar does is he looks north where uh, there are various kind of provinces, um, one on the, the uh, Cisalpine Gaul, uh, on, on the, the Italian side of the Alps, the other Transalpine Gaul, which is a kind of um, the south of, of what's now France. And he says, I'll have those, please. And so he gets given those and not just for one year, but for five years. And by getting that, He's in pole position to win himself the kind of power and authority and wealth and status that only Pompey has. Okay, very good. So Caesar's career is going from strength to strength. The great kind of dramas and crises, the great showdown with Pompey, they all lie ahead of him. The stage is set, if you will. Not quite at the Rubicon, but we're, we're getting there. And I think we should come back tomorrow to find out what happens next. Now, Dear listener, if you can't wait that long, I hate to tell you, but members of the Rest is History Club can listen to the full episode already. And if you want to sign up, you go to restishistorypod.com. And if you don't, well, you only have to wait 24 hours because um, maybe not even 24 hours because the rest of the story will be out tomorrow. So thank you very much, Tom Holland. And we will see you all tomorrow. Thank you very much. Goodbye. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Hold up. 